podcast. This is a resource designed to form substantive disciples for the local church. My name is Nicole Kyle. I'm a part of our staff team. I'm here with Nick Gibson, who's also on our staff team. And um, today we're going to do like a, a roundup of sorts from a few of our recent sermons. Um, we're also th- here with my nervous tempered white Samoyed girl. And if you don't know what a Samoyed is, it's a oh, dog. It's like a fluffy husky. A fluffy dog. Luna is here. Hopefully she'll be quiet. She did puke earlier. Yeah. We got her into the tile out. bathroom, though. That's true. But that's what happens when you eat yarn. Yeah. Yarn? That's what she ate? Yarn. yarn. All right. Yeah. Well. But getting in the weeds. Yes. So anyway, uh, we're here with Luna, and we're going to do a roundup from, of sermons. One of the things that, um, Nick, you've talked about this before, that... Uh, well, okay, so you wanted to talk about the Larry Osborne idea, but this was a Rick Warren idea, too, um, Rick for Warren preaching. Is the, his idea was you preach too much. Yeah, and you need to preach the same thing because it's your congregation. I mean, we just this is the way humans learn. Yeah. You have to hear something over and over again through repetition before you truly know it. Yeah. And so that's why you should preach the same things multiple times. It's not a mm-hmm. bad thing. Yes, but people like hearing things that they are they're just generally familiar with. So you're telling them something they think they already know, but they don't have to work for, or it's something they don't think they know in that they feel like, oh, this is this neat that I'm becoming aware of something uh-huh. new. And those are the two most useless kinds of knowledge. But those are the ones that actually give us the like emotional endorphin yeah. payoff. Sure. And so when you as a pastor go, I'm not going to do that. That's not going to be the main thing. People don't come is the problem. Yeah. So the, pro- the difference between me and like a school teacher is the kids have to come. Right. So the so the school teacher could be like, okay, what's pedagogically the most important thing? I'm just going to do that. Right. The minute you're in a situation where people are consumers and, and opting they, in and out. Yeah. Now you got a problem because and the thing is, is that most people come to church every other week or at best. So even if you review every other week, they still only got it once. Yeah. So that's a problem. Yeah. So so Warren's idea was like, you just have to preach less. Yeah. What I try to do is I try to say the same thing in completely different words, so people don't realize they're reviewing concepts. And then you also have talked about, okay, you said this is a Larry Osborne idea, but the four levels of learning. Oh, I think I can only think of three, but like, okay. so there's, there's well, maybe it's no, that it's four. So yeah. So it's like familiarity, uh-huh. like, Hey, I've heard this before. And then it's like, like sort of general competence. It's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, yeah, yeah. Like I know that. Right. But you don't really know it. And then you get bored with it. You're like, yeah, yeah, I know this. Why are you telling me? Right. So it's when you're starting to get annoyed at people for telling you again. Yeah. And then Osborne goes, but mastery is on the other side of boredom. Right. And so you actually have to go through boredom to repeat it enough times and to really master it. Mm -hmm. And mastery is, and this is the most important thing. Mastery is not when I say it, you go, oh, I knew that. Mastery is no one's around. You you need to be able to call the knowledge up out of the hole of your memory. And it comes up spontaneously. Mm -hmm. Right. That's mastery. Yeah. And you really only own what you've mastered. Right. There's some things you're like, okay, I'll, I'm putting this in the reference part of my mind or like in my stuff. And like, I can find it if I know I need to go look for it. Yeah. But the most important operative things in your life, they have to be mastered because even beyond intellectual mastery, you have to even go beyond that for it to be emotional mastery where you don't just know it right away. You react it right away. Mm-hmm. And that's another step beyond mastery, which is well beyond boredom. Right. So what, and one of the things I also see is that like, I work on these ideas to make them clear. 
And I'm like, oh man, this is a life-changing clarity, clarification. If people see this, understood it. Problem is I say it once on Sunday morning and then it goes in the memory hole forever. Mm-hmm. And I just think that's sad. So I, I want to go back to some of these things and yeah. say, hey, let's review this again and let's see if we can push it deeper into your memory yeah. so that you can actually use it in your spiritual life. And then also just for the, I mean, right, part the purpose of this tool, this um, podcast is to help grow disciples and we're assuming that a handful of people who are listening are church leaders, like lay leaders involved. Mm-hmm. But this, this is why things like small groups are impo- important. This is why getting together with other people to talk about what you're learning and what you're experiencing, why yeah. that matters. This is why memorizing scripture matters. Mm-hmm. Like there are a lot of things that are spiritual disciplines we have to this end yeah, because it matters for our lives so that when you're in the tense moment and the pressure moment, like you said, you're not just, you're able to recall it for application in that right. moment and right. in your walk with the Lord at your office or wherever it is. Yeah. Yeah. People sometimes don't realize how much human knowledge has evolved over the last like seven or 800 years. Like if you go back to 1500 before the printing press, mm-hmm. human knowledge was rooted in memorization. Right. Right. Because manuscripts, writing was so difficult to produce. It was mm-hmm. extremely, one of the most expensive things to create. So you, so you just memorize things. And then the printing press was invented and everyone's like, oh, human knowledge is destroyed because no one will memorize anything. And so knowledge was about learning and knowing it generally, but not literally having it memorized, right? And then in the internet age, it's kind of like massive, vast familiarity. Yeah. And then we, we, we like make ourselves feel morally better about that by calling that familiarity awareness. Hmm. Oh, I'm, I have awareness, hmm. right? That's, a, that's not a useless form of knowledge, but like it's different. It's a different kind of knowledge. And yeah. godliness, if you say, well, what kind of knowledge do you have to have for godliness? And the answer is mastery. Right. It can't just be. Yeah. So, and, and so mastery can be memorization or mastery can be like just knowing it really well, but maybe not having a hundred percent memorized, but like, it's something like that. It's not awareness, mm-hmm. you know? Right. So to that end, there are a few sermons that we're going to return to. Um, and just to talk about some of the ideas and, um, so let's start with this most recent sermon. Okay. So the most recent sermon was on Sunday, December 12th. And we're in the midst of our Advent series. And um, this week you were talking about groaning. And um, your main point was that groaning sustains our hope, whereas grumbling kills our hope. And you got into this table show, trying to show how groaning and grumbling are similar. And it's, it could be easy to confuse them for one another, but they're mm-hmm. not the same. And they have a very distinct posture from one another. Yeah. And similar in form, really different in function. Yeah. So why don't you talk about what you want to really nail? Yeah. So first I, th- I normally yeah. like a lot of people feel alliteration is hokey, but when you're contrasting two ideas like that, sometimes it's really helpful for memory. Mm-hmm. Right. So grumbling versus groaning, right? Groaning is the good one. Grumbling is the bad one. Yeah. Right. And so the the chart has um, a few Grumbling things. Grumbling has a B in it. B, bad. Yeah. There you go. There's your mnemonic device. Yeah. So part of it is you don't want grumbling to be the opposite of joy. Because then people will take in the fallacy that you're always supposed to be happy if you really believe in God. Right. Which is false. Right. Right. You should have the capacity for joy. You should have sort of like that like the core like candle of ultimate joy burning inside of you. Yeah. But that doesn't mean that it's not shrouded with the tears of the present pain. Mm -hmm. And so groaning is the ability to recognize pain. Mm -hmm. Right. So um, it's important to recognize that the big difference is that groaning is not, does not have in it an implicit 
um, accusation. That's the key difference. Groaning is the yeah. expression of pain, but it doesn't have an implicit accusation of who should have prevented this pain. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. And grumbling does. Grumbling is always, you're grumbling against somebody. Groaning is like something coming out of you. It's just coming out of you into the ether. It's like you're groaning. Other people can see it, interact with it, but it's not, it's not pointed at anybody. Grumbling is an arrow being fired at someone in authority that you think didn't do their job. And when we do it generally or cosmically, we're doing it towards God. We're grumbling against God. Right. And one of the fundamental realities I said is, is that God agrees with our groaning. Like when you groan, you're on the same page as God. You're getting on the same page with him and he's in agreement with you. And like you're praying in the right direction because you're in agreement. Whereas groaning is he's not on the same page as you. Mm -hmm. He doesn't think he has governed the universe wrong. Mm -hmm. Even even in your case, even if your case is really bad. So yeah, the, so the way this laid out in terms of the um, that little table I made. Before you get to that table, yeah. actually, I want to interject something. So as you were talking, you gave some examples of how where we see groaning in scripture one example that you used was job and yeah. then you also or and then as you were talking just now about the how grumbling has an associated accusation with it mm -hmm. i thought of the parable of the lost son and the older brother mm -hmm. um who is accusing yeah. his father right. of not giving him something so maybe could just before you get to this table could you just talk compare those contrast those two with yeah. each other a little bit in their attitudes yeah so in the book of job i mean job says a lot of things that are like real close i mean they're complaints so like in in bible in biblical studies right like the concept complaint is just like anytime you're like i wish things weren't like this right it, that's a complaint but there's different kinds of complaints mm -hmm. so groaning is a kind of complaint and grumbling is a kind of complaint right mm -hmm. so with Job, he basically does everything he can to go right up to the line. So some commentators say that when Job curses the day of his birth, that's like as close as you can get to cursing God without doing it. Sure. Because you're cursing the fact that you were born. Well, who has control over the fact that you were born? Right? Right. So like, you, so you go right to the very first moment where you come into the world and every there and after you curse. Mm -hmm. So it's like, it's, it's like he was, he was in so much pain, but, but he, he just didn't let himself cross that line really. Right. Yeah. Whereas in the story of the prodigal son, you can tell that the older brother has been just fuming this whole time. Mm -hmm. And the word you and your comes yes. up a number of times in right. his monologue where he says, your son came home who you gave the money to. He squandered mm -hmm. your wealth. You know what I mean? Like mm -hmm. with prostitutes, um, and he never refers to the younger brother as his brother. Mm -hmm. It's always your son. And I'm thinking too of when he says how much he's done for him. And he says, yeah. you never gave me as much as a calf for me and my friends. Right. Yeah. A young goat, I think is the or, yeah, accusation. Yeah, 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 yeah. Which is like because an eighth of Because he gave the fatted calf to the other right. brother, right? Yeah. And he's like, you didn't even give me a goat. Right. Yeah. You know? And goats are like a little bit tougher and they're uh -huh. not, you know, it's not a, that great a gift, but it's, it's meat, but it's, you know? But there's, it's, I mean, it is a literal accusation. You never did this thing for me. Right. He's saying you're a bad, you're a bad father. Mm -hmm. You care about this stupid prostitute using, squandering, uh, destroying our name, squandering your wealth, that, son, more right. than me. Right. You're better to him than you are to me. Right. And it's awful. Yeah. And on one level, like if you're a dad and one of your sons says, give me my inheritance early. I can't wait for you to die. Like, I don't really literally want you to die, but I wish you were dead in the sense like, I feel like I'm waiting for the real payoff of my life. Can mm -hmm. you just give it to me now? Yeah. And the dad goes, okay, right. So that's humiliating as a father. 
right? And then the other one is the older brother's like, you're a terrible father, right? right? For all these reasons, right? Which is worse? Yeah. Right. Which son is worse? And I'm just kind of like, I don't know. I, uh, it's a tie and a toss up, you know, right, right. but the older brother thinks he's a lot better. Yeah. Right? And so, yeah, that's a, the older brother is a really, this, so this is Luke 15 for those of you listening is a really good example of grumbling, right? It's, yeah. it's, it's, it's very aggressive grumbling. Yeah, it is. Yeah. And I think too, because we see the word grumbling used a lot for the people of Israel, mm-hmm. but in the story of the prodigal son, you're seeing a character that you can, pl- you can identify not just with a group of people, but now a specific person. Yeah. And I think it's yeah. important for us to see that in ourselves. Yeah. And I, I mean, it also gets at this, like the concept of like mature Bible study and why reading the whole Bible and studying, because like the word grumbling isn't used in Luke 15. Right. Uh-huh. Right. But to put it all together, like you have to know what happened. And then by, as a concept, you have to connect it to the word grumbling used in Numbers 14 or yeah. Exodus, whatever. But yeah, that's exactly, that's exactly what that is. It's grumbling, mm-hmm. you know? Okay. So now you can return back to the table. Yeah. So, so like getting this contrast in your mind really clearly is meant to be a self check so that when you feel a complaint in your spirit, one of the things you need to ask yourself is, okay, I'm going to be honest in this complaint, but is the way it's flowing out of me? Is it groaning? Am I being honest about my pain saying Mm -hmm. I'm hurt or am I being honest about the fact that my heart is accusing God of wrongdoing? Right. Right. Which is, which is honesty, but you're wrong. Right. <laughs> and so what do you do when honestly you believe something that's wrong? Yeah. Like part of your response to your pain is something that is false. Right. What do you do? Cause mm-hmm. you like bottle it up and say, well, I don't believe this. No, I think that, I think that you, you're honest with God, but you realize it's you're grumbling. So what do you do? You're like, God, this is what's in my heart. What's in my heart is a grumble against you. Mm-hmm. And I know I'm sorry for it because I know it's wrong, but this is how I'm feeling right now. And I can't see around it. What I need, so the grace I need from you is not just the grace to overcome this pain, but it's the grace to see beyond the grumble, to see like your goodness, how, like mm-hmm. how you're good or, or like the grace to accept it mm-hmm. if I don't understand it. So anyway, so, um, so if a groanings was coming out of you is that's rooted in pain. It's your pain being expressed. Grumbling is pride because you think you have a claim on God, right? So it's rooted in pride and therefore it is to be rejected ultimately, even though it's to be admitted, it's to be rejected, Right. Groaning is basically saying this isn't the way it's supposed to be, right? Which sometimes that's just a, you have bad expectations about the world, but the world is supposed to be different than this, right? And to the extent to which you can't not care about that because you're in the image of God, you you naturally believe the world should be other when you're under the curse. And so that's actually a right thing, right? Grumbling is not, it's not supposed to be this way, but it shouldn't be this way. So God, you should have done better as opposed to this world isn't the way it's supposed to be. And God is working to bring about the good, but God can't do things that are logically impossible, like work for the good among sinners while there not be any sinners. Right. So, and then things are bad. That is like groaning is an expression of disappointment and grumbling is things ought to be better. That is, it's an expression of entitlement. I think that's, that's a really clear difference. You know, if you're expressing disappointment with the situation, with the way things are, that's groaning. If you're telling God he should have done better, you're disappointed in him. That's entitlement. Yeah. Yeah. And then a healing expression, you know, groaning is healing and it's because it's an expression, but it, it helps you heal. Whereas grumbling is a poisoning indulgence. Like it, like it poisons your heart because you're, you're rehearsing this idea that God has done wrong. Yeah. I think and what, mistreated you and you're a victim. I want to stop on that one for a moment. I think I have been in situations where 
the way that I could tell that what I was just doing previously was actually grumbling is like, you know, when you eat too much candy and it's like, it's really sugary. It feels really good in the moment, but then you just feel like so terrible afterwards. Mm -hmm. I think there's a spiritual and emotional sense of how that happens when you're grumbling. Like it might feel great in the moment to like talk horribly about this Mm -hmm. situation and this person and what happened or like to just let out your anger and vent. And then afterwards, and that's not to say that this happens for me every time, but like there are times where if, if I've been in that, I feel this sense of spiritual ickiness, like, Mm -hmm. oh, that actually doesn't heal me. It Mm -hmm. didn't heal me the way that groaning about something could. It actually hurt me more. Groaning feels less good than grumbling when you're doing it. But afterwards, afterwards, grumbling feels worse. Yeah. It leaves a hangover, whereas right. groaning, you feel like increasingly more peaceful. Mm-hmm. Like it's quieter in your soul and mm-hmm. you feel more peaceful. Yeah, I think that's true. Yeah. I think some people who have grown up in families with cultures of gossip and grumbling and they and the family just is completely unaware of the toxicity of it. Yeah. It's just part of the family culture. Uh, people have kind of closed off their conscience to it for a really long time and they won't feel that way. Sure. So in some ways, what you're describing there is helpful if your conscience is already somewhat calibrated to that. Right. But if you're like, well, I don't feel that way, that might not be a good sign. It may be that you've either not listened to your conscience for a while or you're just you're from a culture or a family that like gossips and grumbles. And if that's true, you have to resensitize yourself to it by obeying the Lord and trusting him and what's good and what's not good. Yeah. You know, and let that rework its way into the way you feel about what's good and not good. But yeah, I think you're right about that. For people who are at least half calibrated correctly about that, it yeah, feels icky. You can sense that. Yeah. Groaning is also compatible with thankfulness, right? So like you can be, you can groan and be thankful. Right. You can't really grumble and be thankful and be honest mm-hmm. about it. Right. And that's critical because you, Christians should always be thankful. Even when we're not happy, even when we don't feel like things are fantastic, there's always stuff to thank God about. Yeah. Right. Because when you're grumbling, you don't thank God, but you blame him. Mm-hmm. Right. When you're groaning, you can groan and still thank God. So right. gro- grumbling is incompatible with thankfulness. It's or it's not just incompatible. It's actually antithetical to thankfulness. It's literally the opposite. And then therefore groaning is then an appeal for grace. You're asking God for help. And grumbling is a demand for performance. God, you should be doing this. Right. And so groaning, scripture says, gets God's compassionate attention and gr- grumbling his disciplinary attention. Like he he's just really drawn to gr- the groaning of his people. And he's not drawn in the same positive way to the grumbling of his people. So, um, if you're, if someone is listening to this and they're like, all of a sudden they have this moment of awakening where they realize, oh my goodness, because maybe they are going through something really painful, but they're realizing my reaction to this has been grumbling, Mm -hmm. not groaning. And they're, they're coming to you and they say, okay, how do I change that posture? Like what, how do I make a, a change here so that I can repent of my grumbling and change this into groaning. Cause it's not like, I mean, in some cases you do something different. That's true, mm-hmm. but it's the, it is your posture and the, per, like the attitude of your heart here that really needs to change. So what advice mm-hmm. do you give to that person? Um, yeah, I mean, I th- groaning is always going to be tempted to become grumbling because you always wish you could do more than just say, I'm sad. Mm-hmm. Right. There's something that feels like yeah. not enough about that. Totally. And um, but once then you find yourself having fallen into that temptation, 
Yeah, I think I think first of all, sometimes people fall into it because they don't know the alternative. They really don't understand lament, mourning, and grumbling and groaning. Sorry, and so they grumble because they think that's the only thing you can do. Yeah. So first of all, the reason why I've taught this is like so people can go like, okay, what I should be doing is groaning, not grumbling. Okay, but then I think um, go trying to go deeper in the gro- in the groaning. You know, just be like, well, what really is the pain and how deep does it go and how disappointed am I? And right, because if the groaning isn't cleansing, if it doesn't feel like it's doing any work, it may be that you're not groaning very deeply. Mm-hmm. Right. And then you na- you psychologically naturally want more to happen. Well, the only way to make more to happen is to grumble. Mm-hmm. Right. Because God isn't immediately changing your circumstances. You haven't been vindicated. Right. So either you have to groan deeper. But then one of the things that the psalmists always do is they groan deeply. And then they, they reflect on what they believe about God. Right. And then they say, you know, but you are trustworthy. Right. And so they, they do, um, it's kind of funny, like a, a cynical atheist would say, what you do is you say how you feel and then you religiously gaslight yourself. Hmm. Right. Like you, hmm. you say all this stuff to defend God to yourself sure. and you repress your, right. The, the problem is, is that it's all true. <laughs> so yeah. Um, that's why I don't like it when people say use the word gaslighting because you have to evaluate whether or not the thing being said is true, not whether or not you like it or not. Mm. And w- the thing is, these are all true. God has been good. Mm-hmm. There are a thousand things to be thankful for. He is with you. He yeah. he does bring down the wicked. He does like he does do all that stuff. And so, and he will ultimately do all that stuff. And so, when in Psalm seventy three, the psalmist can go through all these things and say, "I almost lost my faith, but if I would, that I would betray myself and my children." Because surely, God, you do do all these things. Mm-hmm. You're just not doing them on the timetable I wish. You're not right. doing them the way I want to see. And so it makes me want to disbelieve because you're not, like my hurt says you're not doing it right. Mm-hmm. And I realized that that was a betrayal of myself to think that way. Yeah. So you have to, yeah, you you apply faith. you And, and you apply what God has spoken and shown about himself. That's why, that's why Christianity and I think human faith, like salvational faith, is relies on revelation. Because sometimes people say that natural revelation is enough. If you can see the sky and the stars and you can look at a worm and you can look at a tree, like you should know there's a God. But the thing is, is that the curse is in creation too. Mm -hmm. So if you have a truly scientific mind, you just end up confused. Sure. You see all the beauties of creation. You're like, there must be a benevolent God. And then you see like, like. Viruses that kill lots of. Right. You see horrible things and you're like, oh there must be an evil God. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, like, yeah, it, yeah. like it'll leave yeah, you confused. Yeah. And so that's why God has spoken and shown himself in time, space, history yeah. in revelation, like in the revelation of Jesus Christ through mm-hmm. prophetic words, through his actions in history and through all their ultimate inscripturation in the Bible. And that living out in the life of the spirit, in the life of the church, mm-hmm. like God has done that so that when we are confused by our experiences, whether philosophically investigating the world with our minds scientifically, so to speak, or experientially when we suffer all the pains of living under the curse with all the hopes of being part of creation mm-hmm. when we face that internal experiential contradiction we have something to apply to it that is what god has said is true in a confusing world and so if you don't avail yourself to that you only go the halfway of groaning you won't get anywhere i think um for me it, this is a few years back in my life but i i started reading through Psalms because that was what, that was the only, um, it was a part of scripture that felt like a balm when I felt like I was in a lot of pain. And 
I think I learned a lot what groaning looks like through Mm -hmm. reading the Psalms and then praying those, which I also want to say that until someone explicitly, I heard people say the phrase, pray the Psalms over and over again. Mm -hmm. And that made no sense to me. So maybe that's you. So I'll just say like what that looks like for me is reading a verse of a Psalm and then taking that idea and praying that back to God and applying it to the specific situation that I'm in, in in that moment, which sometimes requires creativity because I don't, you know, have, um, enemies that are camped outside my home waiting to kill me mm-hmm. <laughs> right now. But, um, yeah, but I try to figure out like, but what is that? What feels like an enemy to me right now? And mm-hmm. then praying about that. Um, yeah. but that, I think that's a good way. If you don't know what it looks like to groan, use the example of scripture, go through Psalms and try to use that as a form or a model for how you can pray and groan with whatever it is in your life right now. Yeah. I think, I think learning to pray scripture is one of the best ways to teach yourself how to pray. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's, I, and I think, in, I think that's in Donald Whitney's spiritual disciplines book. Praying scripture. I think praying, mm-hmm. like, yeah. I think he has a section on biblical meditation. They're like to do a quiet times. So you start with like reading a passage and then meditating on what it means. You spend mm-hmm. some time like thinking about it personally with yourself and then you pray the passage. Yeah. Yeah. You know? And I think that that discipline is ex- like extremely helpful because mm-hmm. you, you, you don't say the Bible abstractly that way. Yeah. You do apply it. And then um, if what you want is to pray in God's will. Right. Then, then pray praying his, his word is like a really good way to do that. Yeah. yeah. Is there anything else that you want to say about this topic before we move on? Um, I mean, there's a lot of things, I, I have, but I think that the most important thing is that, I mean, this is just, an, there, are certain, there are certain things that feel like peripheral concepts that are really just new words for the most fundamental concepts mm-hmm. of Christian faith. So mm-hmm. groaning is a way of saying faith <laughs> and grumbling is a way of saying idolatry. Sure. Mm-hmm. And so in some yeah. ways it's like this, like, Hey, it's this peripheral. No, it's not peripheral. Like, yeah. the, like the difference between groaning and grumbling is the difference between faith and idolatry applied to a painful situation. Yeah. Or mm-hmm. the worship of God in self worship. Mm-hmm. Like that's the difference between those two. Yeah. And that's one of the ways to sober yourself when you're gossiping or when you're grumbling is to say, this is self-worship. Like, like there, there's a verse that says, let God be true and every man a liar, right? Like for you to be correct, God has to be a liar, right? Mm-hmm. When you justify yourself and like, so if you say, I'm going to justify myself, what you're saying is it's worth saying God is a liar for me to justify myself. Mm-hmm. And when you grumble, that's what you're doing. What you're saying is it's worth impugning God's character to make myself feel better about my pain. And that's not a good trade. And if you're willing to make that trade, it's because you are delusionally self-worshipping yourself. Like mm. You're just out, you're out of touch. And so on one level, people are like, oh, is this that big a deal? And it's like, yeah, it kind of is that big a deal. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a huge, huge deal. So and it, I think understand it gets, that distinction applying it is important. It, it, the, you talked about this, that like the more that you're in a culture of that, the more you um, anesthetize yourself to, to being able to perceive the spirit convinced. Uh, convicting you of something or showing mm-hmm. you something in it. So it does over the long haul poison you. It's really easy to say it's not that big of a deal. Yeah. Because maybe in that moment it hasn't changed you that much, but over time the cumulative effect yeah. is more than you realize. I mean, especially if you right now are a younger person and you have kind of like left of center politics and you're willing to accommodate statements like silence is violence. In, in realms like racial ideas. Yeah. Well, if what's true in the particular is true in the general, if you believe relative to human nature, the use of our words are that powerful, then it's, it's, it's kind of ideological hypocrisy to say 
But it's not true that when I gossip or grumble, <laughs> that that's not consequential, mm-hmm. right? It's actually it, the fact that the generalities of the of are the use of our words and how we respect the image of God in other people or respect God in our words. That's the only thing that could possibly make statements like silence is violence relative to race true, right? And so I think that it's important to set, to recognize that like these sort of fundamental realities of humanity being lived out actually precede the idiosyncrasies of some of our other beliefs. And if we believe those things, then we should believe these things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we should see how important they are because they are right. like life and death is in groaning and grumbling, not just how we apply those words to like racial equity, for example. Yeah. All right. We are going to go back one week. Um, also, just for an update, if you're curious, Luna is still here and she's snoring, but she can't hear because she doesn't have a microphone. Okay, we're going to go back a week. This was week two of Advent, so December 5th, I believe. And the that sermon was, the point of that sermon is that persecution is God's work in the waiting. We've been talking about how Advent is this season of waiting, waiting for God to fulfill his promises, mm-hmm. and that persecution is God's work in the waiting. And so you spent some time talking about levels of persecution. Um, and I think... Th- before to pref- or to say a little bit more context there too, this you talked about this situation where Christians want to bring up persecution and you have some people who are going to say like we are comfortable Christians in America we really should we be talking about persecution right now when yeah. stuff is happening in China that people don't even know about right. not to mention plenty of other countries where there is much more harsh physical persecution happening. Mm-hmm. Right. And oftentimes for younger Christians, this is related to leftist center political mm-hmm. ideology where it says these same Christians who in one part of their intersectional identity are saying, I'm a Christian and I'm being persecuted X. They're also privileged in another part of their intersectional identity. That is they're white, for example, in many sure. cases, um, white evangelicals, for example, in America do believe very different things from yeah. non-white evangelicals. And they'll say like, as a white evangelical, you have all these privileges. And if we did the math, in your intersectional identity, your privileges minus your persecution, you're still in the positives. Right, right. Is, I think, the feeling that they have. Yeah. Now, I'm not saying that's wrong. I think in some cases that's mm-hmm. probably right. Like, if you mm-hmm. live in central Tennessee and you're a white male Christian and you feel like MSNBC is persecuting you, but they can't really get at you, you know, like, your mm-hmm. area is still relatively conservative mm-hmm. and whatever, and, like, it, you can be a Christian however you choose to be one, and you're fine, and you're like, I'm being persecuted, and they're like, I'm not sure... Like that's possible. Mm-hmm. Um, that may even be true in urban areas that are that are strongly irreligious and have anti-religious biases. If you were able to do that intersectional math, maybe maybe the yeah. like white Christian guy is still in the net positive. That's possible. I don't know how one would do that, mm-hmm. but still, ethically speaking, that doesn't make the persecution right. Well, so let's. It's still let, an injustice and an oppression, right? So right? And we don't want to oppress anybody. This gets at what your level. So I'll finish right. this before you can start talking about this because there's that perspective. Then there's the other perspective that will say that we'll talk about, no, I'm like persecution of thought or freedom or ideology. Mm -hmm. And, and so you get into these arguments about like what qualifies as persecution and how bad is your persecution? And should we even be talking about it? And And is there a slippery slope or a progression that you have to stop before it gets, because like there's a, there's a certain point where I think it's, it's GK Cheshton who said, if you're going to stop, a hatchet swinging at somebody's head, it's best to do it before the hatchet stops. Yeah. 
in their head, right? So, like, yeah. so some right. Christians have said that about like persecution or that's like it would have been great if China could have stopped the Cultural Revolution before the Cultural Revolution happened. Mm-hmm. Now you could be like, you know what, we should have stopped that a hundred years ago. Well, you know, it's a little late, right? right. You know, the, the hatchet has already been swung, right? And so Christians have debated like. Where do you start do you fighting s- yeah. persecution? Uh-huh. Because it is a human injustice. We're not supposed to go along with it. We're supposed to bear it well, but that doesn't mean we're supposed to invite it unnecessarily, right? Right. So I think I think that's something a lot of Christians. I think and I think it afflicts white evangelicals more because white evangelicals are not used to being persecuted. Mm-hmm. Now they're receiving that persecution. They're like, uh, uh-uh, uh, yeah. Right. Whereas I think for a lot of African Americans, they're like they've been persecuted for the race. They're coming more out of that persecution. And so now the question is, okay, so they're like, well, this isn't, this persecution doesn't seem that bad. I uh-huh. feel like I've been persecuted more for being black than being a Christian. Right. But I think that African-Americans shouldn't need to be careful about that view because it may be that the minute you just finally got relief for being persecuted because you're black. And if persecution for really being a Christian increases dramatically, you're going to go out of the frying pan into the fire. Mm. Right. I mean, maybe it would be really wise for some minority Christians to be like, okay, I need, I don't persecuting our my white my white christian brothers if it's related to their christianity to the extent to which i'm going to be faithful into the future i'm going to inherit this mm-hmm. i need to find a way to split up white from christian right mm-hmm. and so on so yeah. i think i think that both white and black and every other kind of christian needs to think this through a little more carefully yeah. for different reasons sure mm-hmm. so you um your first point in this sermon was just persecution for the Christian does exist. And this is something we always everywhere. Yeah. Yes. Because, because Jesus literally said very directly, like the way is narrow. Yeah. Like it's always a significant, even if you're in Christendom, like, like 75% of people say they're Christians. 75% of people are not Christians, not mm-hmm. in the biblical sense. And so you talked about different levels of persecution yeah. and, um, so you want to talk about those a little bit more? Yeah, structures and levels of intensity. So, and I, I took a version of this from Tim Keller's talk he did at Berkeley some years ago um, on a slightly different subject. He wasn't talking about persecution. He was talking about how secularity should interact with religiosity going forward and how we persecute each other. So as I talk about this, this th- I'm using persecution here in the generic sociological sense. So like people of one race can persecute people of another race. People of one gender, could, right? People of one one uh, sports team could, per, like, sure. you know what I mean? Like, uh-huh. so this is a unit. Now, this is the same dynamic we use that happens to people religiously. But for example, if there's a place where Christians persecute another religious group, it's going to be the same dynamic. These yeah. are human norms, not just what happens to Christians. That makes mm-hmm. sense. Okay. So the first is separation or emotional and social exclusion, where people are just it just gets socially uncomfortable. Where like, you're not really, you, you can't be really in our friend group or we're not, when I go someplace, I'm not going to call you, but I'm gonna call other people or we're not going to pick you for this job. We're going to say it's for something else, but this is a factor. Mm -hmm. Um, or we're going to say, we're going to say, well, it's not because you're a Christian, but it's clearly the implication of something you believe because you're a Christian and sexual ethics is like a huge flagship for this because to the extent to which Christians hold to a historic biblical perspective on sexuality and sexual identity and gender and that sort of thing, um, People will say to somebody who holds that view, well, it's not because you're a Christian, but it's because your presence is dangerous to our LGBTQ friends, right? You want to erase them because you don't think that 
for something, something about gender ideology is actually incorrect, Mm -hmm. right? Even if you're incredibly loving towards LGBTQ oriented people, you don't want to control the way they identify themselves. You believe in liberality in public life and all those sorts of things. But because you don't affirm certain ideas about the nature of reality because they're wrong and because your faith explicitly states, Jesus explicitly said that they were wrong. They'll be like, well, it's, to, it's not because you're a Christian, but it's because you believe those things. Well, only their ignorance and bigotry could show that they don't understand that those are entailed in being a Christian and that you believe them in many ways because you are one. So that begins to happen. There's just like this natural social exclusion. And now some people are like, well, that's not that big a deal. Well, it's a really big deal if you're a teenager. Right. Yep. And because this is now, this kind of behavior has absolutely like in spades made it into our secondary schooling system. It is an enormous amount of social and emotional pressure that students don't really fully understand. And it is, it is devastating for them emotionally. And so some of our African-American friends here in Madison have called being black in the white school system in Madison, quote, traumatizing for black Mm -hmm. students. And I'm just going to, I'm just going to say this, this may be controversial. If that's true, maybe it's true. If that's true, I think we're either approaching or we have arrived there for the irreligious persecution and its impact on the souls and hearts of Christian students. Um, And and I'm just going to tell you, I've had those conversations with parents. I've had those conversations with students. They're in tears. They're numb. They react where they can't think. Um, They have symptoms of trauma. Um, And so obviously this is going to be relative to kids' sensitivities and so on. They shut up about it in school. Mm -hmm. They know that if they say that they're Christian, they know what's going to happen to them. They know how the effect is, what the effect is going to be. They can tell you about being belittled and made fun of by teachers. They can tell you about teachers asking them questions that are completely developmentally inappropriate to ask kids to answer in front of their peers on the spot in front of an educated adult. Um, it's just, it's, it's, it's really awful. And, um, Christians should not pretend that's not true. Even if you think Christians shouldn't control the schools or something like mm-hmm. that, does that make sense? Right. And so I think that, so I think the bullet, I mean, the bullying was really bad in the nineties when I went to college, but I was 18 and that's still adolescence. And I wasn't a complete adult at that point. Um, but I was in a place where but even there, I saw most Christians fall away from their faith. And it wasn't because, and this is what academics always think. Well, it's because they encountered better ideas because they came to college. It is not that. It is the emotional, like the unilateral, the, the like, everybody thinks the same thing. You know what you have to believe to get ahead. It's the same reason why mm-hmm. people at Princeton don't debate free speech anymore. Like, like there was a documentary done about like all the like stuff against free speech being done mm-hmm. there. And they said, why don't all the Princeton students who don't believe in this say anything? And the answer was like, they had a bunch of them on camera with their faces blurred out saying, I came to Princeton to get a good job. I didn't come to Princeton to fight. Hmm. Like, I don't want to, I'm not going to go on the record. Like I'm not going to be, I'm not going to be the person that they kill. So like they knew what would happen to them and they were doing it for social reasons, not for ideological reasons. It's not like people at Princeton persuaded most of the kids there that free speech was bad. It was because they came to Princeton to get ahead in life. They didn't come to Princeton to get demolished because of something they believed, even though they thought it was the truth, right? And that's also true for Christian faith for most people, right? So um, this this one, even though it's like, in some ways, it's like not that quote big, if it's connected to things like social acceptance, moving ahead in life, getting into colleges, getting good jobs, getting the right internships, having having friends who influence people and blah, 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 blah. Especially if you're under 30, 
it's actually incredibly affective on your feelings, on your personhood, on your development, on your beliefs and all those sorts of things. Because the number one belief in the heart of a kid who's like, I don't know, 12 to 22 is I don't want to be excluded. Mm-hmm. And so yeah. anytime you hold exclusion over somebody's head, just don't tell yourself that you're being intellectually honest and like influencing them like in a totally open way. No, you're, you're using their fear to get them to submit to you is what you're doing. Right. And that's happening in colleges. It's been, that's for years and years and years, yeah. but it's also happening in, um, in schools. And also because, um, this ideology has moved, not just from a anti-religious ideology, but that everybody is responsible for promoting and being an activist themselves. What's happened is, is like when I was in school, there was this huge campaign against peer pressure. Don't like try to make other kids do stuff, right? They wanted to, because we were making each other smoke, drink, have sex and blah, 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 blah. Right. And AIDS was a death sentence in 1994. Right. And so they were like, don't, don't peer pressure is bad. Right. They have reversed that now. Now you're supposed to be an advocate right? That's your Mm. job. If you're a good person, you're going to be aware of the right things and you're going to be an advocate in the right ways. And so if some other kid isn't believing the right things, you're You're supposed to convince them. Well, how are you supposed to convince them? Because you're like super great adult level arguments. No, through social pressure, through peer pressure. So like it's like, it's insane. The hypocrisy, like it's hard for me to like keep my blood pressure down when I think about the direct ideological and developmental hypocrisy here. Um, but that's what it is. Mm-hmm. And so I think that like, like if you're a young person, or if you're parenting or if you're like in youth ministry or something like that, I just think just do not belittle the effect of this on people's faith and the mm-hmm. development of their faith and their mm-hmm. willingness to be counted for Jesus mm-hmm. there. I mean the, but, but this gets back to like the silver lining on the disgusting, horrible thundercloud of persecution, which is if you survive, you're vaccinated. Like if you stand up as at 15 and you're like, listen, I'm going to be counted with Jesus. Mm-hmm. I know you're all going to hate me. I'll just burn it to ashes. And the Lord says that he will provide friends and family members for me in this world. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to, I'm going to trust him. I don't care what you think of me. You'll achieve a kind of emotional differentiation and independence as a human being. You'll be able to worship God and know him and you'll become a self in a way that you won't. Cause like all this like peer pressure stuff, it's making people less differentiated as individual human beings and they become less of a self and they're just less of a person. And so there's a great benefit to being rejected, but it's the cost is so high. Right. And so I think we under, so this, so that's what I have to say about that. The second caricature is similar, which is like after people have separated from you, they talk crap about you. Right. And they focus on what they don't like about you. And then they tell everybody about it to try to get everybody else involved Mm -hmm. in disliking you in separating from you and excluding you because now you're just the character they painted. I'm just going to pause you really quick because both times that you said caricature, you said it really fast and I'm reading it here, but I don't know if other people who are listening understood what you said. The second we were talking about these four levels of persecution and the second is caricature. Right. So if I separate from you, right. And I say, Nicole, I'm separating from you because you're a bad person. Right. That's one thing. If I then say to everybody else, you know what Nicole is like? And I take what I think is your worth characteristic and I broadcast that as the only thing that matters about you so that everybody else won't like you. That's another level of oppression and injustice. And it's pretty common. And like, just think cable news and social media, mm-hmm. right? Um, the amount of evil done on those platforms, though they're in themselves, either good or neutral is profound. Mm-hmm. And Christians do it a lot. So as if you're listening to this and you're a believer, I would say, okay, one, don't lie to yourself about what's being done to you and to others like you and to believers. You should care about that. You should be in solidarity with yourself and others in these ways. And God cares about that. 
also don't turn around and do it to somebody else. Yeah, yeah. Like for God's uh-huh. sakes, like if you're like, you know what? These people, they caricature me. Okay. Well, then don't do that to Democrats or Republicans or Trump supporters or Biden supporters or whatever. Right. Like, cause I see Christians like constantly doing this and like Jesus said, do to other people what you wish they would do to you. Yeah. If you wish they wouldn't ostracize you and caricature you, then you cannot do it to them. And the only way to win them over to you is that you refuse to treat them wrongly. Mm-hmm. Right. And I mean, in some ways, I would just all need to be like reschooled by Martin Luther King Jr. Right. Like you have to do, you have to refuse to mistreat other people if you want to have brotherhood and if you want to really appeal to their conscience in telling them to stop mistreating you. Otherwise, it's just a power play. Mm. And that doesn't heal anything. One small um, tangent from this, too, is that I think culturally, I mean, we we recognized this a lot during the um, campaign season, but this, it's not that it was new then, but that we were just not very good at holding two things in tension and allowing two yeah. things to be true at the same time. And I think that we do that poorly when it comes to people where we, we either see them as all good or all bad rather mm-hmm. than recognizing that people are complex beings right. who can have the capacity for both good and evil. Right. And so right. instead and they don't believe things the way you think they believe them. That's yeah, why caricature yeah. is so bad. Right. So we, instead we just, choose the one thing that we don't like, we exaggerate it, we f- we reject that there could be anything else there and we just focus on that thing. Yeah, and it's based on our fear and laziness mm-hmm. because we don't want to have to grapple with our enemy as a complicated moral agent. Yeah. They just they're just bad. And we don't want to live in a complicated world. We don't have to sort it out, mm-hmm. right? So we just go you're bad and therefore I'm good and so on. And it's it's really yeah. sad. Yeah. Okay, so, what's so the characters, third one? So the third is marginalization or repression. That that's like when you actually are engaging ways to to you're you're exerting containment on the other person. So you're not trying to kill them, but you're trying to like put the shoe on the foot to control what how they can grow. You're trying to stop their capacity to grow. Mm-hmm. So think um late 19th century Chinese foot binding. Right? Mm-hmm. We don't want the young woman's foot to get any bigger, so we're going to put a shoe on it to bind it up so it can't grow. Yeah. So the form of these like tiny little feet, um, I, got, I have one of these in my, uh, one of my great, great, great aunts, great, great, great aunt, um, went to China as a missionary with China, yeah. China Inland Mission. And, and one of the things she sent back was a grown woman's shoe. And it was about four and a half inches long yeah. and about an inch and a half wide. I mean, think about that. Yeah. In fact, Ai Weidei, um, Gladys Allward was a missionary in China. She was like a charwoman in Britain and she just decided she wanted to be a missionary. And so she went, just went to China Served this lady in her 80s. The lady died. She took over this, this like, it was like a house for travelers. And then she made it into an orphanage. Yeah. And then one of the ways she was able to preach the gospel all over that region of China was they had decided to get rid of the policy of foot binding. They were going to, like, get rid of it. And so the Mandarin leader of that area was like, look, I need somebody that, like, I can trust because he couldn't trust any of the Chinese officials because the practice was so culturally embedded these officials would tell the Mandarin leader that they had stopped it, but they hadn't. Mm. So, so, so she picked this British, he picked this British woman and paid her mm. to go everywhere and like literally inspect the feet of women in every village, young women in every village. And she's like, well, I'm going to tell them all about Jesus. She, the guy's like, I don't care. <laughs> he's <laughs> like, but just, I want you to inspect all the women's feet. Mm-hmm. Right. And so she did. And she was like, she went all over this region of China and all hundreds and thousands of women didn't have their feet crippled by this practice. But in addition, she shared the gospel yeah. with like thousands and thousands of women because she was like, I, I am against this. And yeah. she was publicly against foot binding when it was still fashionable. Right. So the Mandarin, like the, the leadership, when it was time to switch the policy, he knew he, who he could, he really, could really count on. Okay. So 
We don't have that today. Right. What do we see? So today? like, so what we're, so what, um, what marginalization repression will be? So, so for example, in a lot of Islamic countries, you can't build a church. You can't fix a church. Right. So there, so like you can have a church. Sure. You can't fix a building in China right now. It's illegal to take children to church. Okay. You can go to church but as long can't. as it's a government authorized church. Right. But it's illegal to take a child to church to learn the faith. Sure. Even if they're your children, okay. doesn't matter. They're the state's children, really. So in that way, you're, you're, what you're going to do is you're just going to choke the church. You're yeah. going to choke the people of God. You're going to keep them from growing. Because what will happen is some will just leave the church because they don't want to put up with this stuff. Mm-hmm. And then other people will like, they'll live through it, but you'll just, you'll just stop it at this or the next generation. It'll, it'll dwindle out. Mm-hmm. So ways in which you can just choke the ability for the thing to grow. Yeah. Right. So like you can't talk about your faith in this building. We right. just have this policy. You just can't talk about religion. Right. Right. So wait, so you can control your employee speech, but not about anything else. Yeah. Right. What you're doing is you're just trying to, it's like, you know, it's like, it's like a 12 year old's hands choking you to death. You mm-hmm, know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's slow. Yeah. Um, and so marginalization and repression is a way of keeping groups from growing. Right. So that they will ultimately peter out. Sure. Right. Which is a yeah. form of oppression. It's a very, it's a very strong form of oppression actually. Yeah. It's, and in fact, in a lot of ways, it's the most common form of repression from authoritarian people, hmm. people who know they're being authoritarian, they are trying to destroy you, but they want to look do better doing yeah. it. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And some people need to just be obvious, be honest with themselves that this is what they're trying to do to other people. You know what I mean? So and that would be true if like a Christian was doing that to like an atheistic group where it's like, sure. like you'd like try to make it so they couldn't get a mortgage in your town. Like they yeah. couldn't rent office space or whatever. Right. You're just trying to like control what they could do. As opposed to allow them to f- be free. Yeah. You yeah. Know, and to give them the dignity they deserve. That doesn't okay. mean you have to let them preach in your church. Or right. You're, or you're marginalizing right. them. They they have to win their, just like we have to win our audience. Like mm-hmm. like the fact that like people sometimes don't want to listen to us in the city, that's not marginalization or repression. But ways, actions taken to stop us is. So for example, there were some places in California that cracked down on Christian small groups meeting in homes. Because they right, said that that the was pandemic, right? No, no, way before this. Just because oh. they because people would park on the street. Oh, for yeah, yeah. And people and they in neighborhoods were like, zoning. we don't want these yeah. people. Yeah, and they were like, well, this is a mis a misuse of your house relative to zoning. Yeah, right. But they wouldn't do that with people who had like poker nights every week, right? But the Christian small groups. Now that was a real problem. Mm-hmm. But that so that was a use of they're saying, well, it's not because you're Christians. It's because you're out of zoning. Right. Right. This this house isn't zoned for religious meetings. Right. Right that kind of thing yeah okay so so for example at epic i can't go there and have lunch with christians if it's a group i can go there and meet with one person but they have policies in place about quote religious groups so i can't have if i have lunch with five or six people those employees could get in trouble that's the last i heard about the policies there huh and so there are some now and i understand like they're just kind of like we don't want the arguments we don't want the problems yeah but you you embrace lots of other arguments and problems have you told people that they can't get together and talk about race at Epic? How do you think that would go over? But that creates all kinds of discomfort and problems with people, right? So you're making judgments about who you're going to choke and who you're going to water, mm-hmm. right? And when people do that for people, for God's people, it is a form of marginalization and repression, right? And then the, the fourth is, of course, oppression attack. It's the direct plundering, violence, threats, legal action, imprisonment, that sort of thing, which the world is full of and has been full of. And this gets back to the question of at what point do you have to stop the hatchet before it drops? Right. 
And this is a really difficult issue because especially within the different racial groups within the Christian church, because one of the reasons I think white evangelicals and non-white evangelicals are believe so differently about American culture right now is non-white evangelicals are focused on improvement, like getting things to get better. Mm -hmm. And a lot of white evangelicals are focused on stopping things from getting worse. And the problem is, is because racial justice has been tied in with certain socialistic ideologies and those socialistic ideologies, ideologies really have produced a lot of the most horrible things that have happened to human beings and Christians in the last 200 years. And yet they've been tied in with practical actions people believe are necessary for racial justice. It has become this cocktail of the devil to divide Christian believers. Because on one level, the, the white Christians are absolutely correct that socialistic policies of totalitarianism and thought control and those sorts of things that are that really are in things. Like if you read if you read 30 pages of critical race theory of any book in anywhere it's published, and you know something about like Marcuse or like different forms of like socialistic ideology. Like it's, it's all baked in there. And yet, um, people who are trying to advocate for like things to get better, Mm -hmm. they're like, well, nobody listens to us except these people. Or like, these are the people who want to help us. So like, I'll take a little Marcuse in my coffee. If like we can get some equity relative to like the, our schools shouldn't have mold in the classrooms. Right. And if the only people who will say Detroit schools for predominantly black kids should not have any mold in the classrooms are the people who are half socialists or all socialists, dang it, I'm going to be on their team, even if the hatchet is falling, which it probably isn't as bad as you guys think. And so it's created this division in the church because it, it turns out like I think I said this in the sermon last Sunday or the Sunday before. The problem with all this political division is not that everybody's wrong. It's that everybody's right. Mm-hmm. So like the people who say, listen, this shouldn't be molded. Like, like these, these, uh, some of the, some of the racial justice things that are said are in fact right. Some of the stuff that white evangelicals are saying about the creeping nature of totalitarianism are also right. Do you think the people in Germany and in Italy and in Spain and in Russia and in the Ukraine and in China, you think those people were just all stupid? Just, they're just all stupid. And they were like, you know what? A totalitarian regime is going to like grow up and kill us all. This is going to be fantastic. And so let's just do that. No, none of them thought that. All of them thought that like, oh, these guys are good guys and these guys are bad guys and we're going to have a better society and like we should do these policies and let's let the government do them all and let's let them control. Well, they're control our lives. Yeah, in some ways, but it'll be better for everybody. Won't that be fantastic? And then it doesn't work. Right. And there's always this lie that like, well, we have the technology now we can do it. But the problem is, is that human beings don't have the moral technology for some of these things. And Christianity teaches that. And so the idea that white evangelicals, who many of their ancestors were the ones slaughtered in the European experiments of this, which were the largest ones before China, like we have, like, like I have relatives, like a lot of white people in America, we have relatives that were oppressed by these folks. And it goes all the way back to things like the wars of religion in the 1630s, right? So like, there's this really strong cultural memory, but the cultural memory with African-Americans is not the same cultural memory. When right. They their, remember, their memory of their oppression is... Right, not very, for the same, not yeah, the same they, political scheme, nope. not the same group of people. It's very no, different. And perpetrated so by some of the very, very white people who were escaping those oppressions right, right. were the perpetrators of those oppressions. So it's not weird that like an African-American church leader should be like, listen, my memory is a little more recent. Mm-hmm. And until we sort, we, we need to start with the present and work backwards, yeah. not backwards and forward. But then the white person goes, yeah, well, listen, you realize that the, the, the oppression we're talking about is happening right now in China and getting worse. 
And it's really not that long ago that people were murdered in very vast numbers based on these ideologies. In fact, like Jim Crow is old compared to some of it. Right. And it's like, again, it goes back to the thing. They're not both wrong. They're both right. Mm -hmm. And so, um, that's why as a, I'm so like, I'm a white guy. So I'm trying to help other white believers see that like, listen, this other perspective has some validity to it. Don't rule it all out because mm-hmm. of the insight that you really do hold. Yeah. But we, but I think white evangelicals are right. that They're like, look, we still should stop the hatchet before it hits. Yeah. You know? Okay. So we have just a few more minutes. Um, cause I need to go home. So <laughs> we have a few more minutes. So here, the last thing I want to give you some time to talk about was, um, the single angle fallacy and the idea, I'll just say this one little thing. Don't assume that God is only working one angle. Yeah. So um, one of the things I, th- I think leads people away from the Lord is something happens and then they think of like Romans 820 that all things work for the good. Right. So we know God is quote working for the good. Right. And so then people think, okay, well then what's his angle? How is he working for the good? And the problem is, is that by doing that, you use the word angle in the singular and you're kind of like assuming that it's just like one thing, mm-hmm. right? And the thing is, is that the thing that's happening to you is related to like six other people, which is related to 12 other people. And so like God isn't, there's, there isn't an angle in most cases. Yeah. There's multiple angles. So like even in a simple act of separational persecution, right? There is the person who's doing the persecuting. There's a person who's receiving the persecution. There's the dynamic between those two people. There's what it does in each person when they do it. There's how God is relating all those things relative to a larger picture. So God's not working an angle. He's working more angles than you have poss- you can possibly yeah. imagine. He's working them all at the same time. And he's, and they're all the angles are related to each other. So if you imagine a polygon where like the inside angle on an octagon is that you probably know what these, what these, degrees are is one degree but the outside of that same angle is the rest of the 180 degrees Mm -hmm. it's by definition another angle so if if like the inside angle is let's say 70 degrees the outside of it the of the 180 degrees is going to be 110 Mm -hmm. and the 110 is dictated by the 70 Mm -hmm. right it's logically necessary well god's omnipotence does not mean that he can do things that are logically impossible so if god is working two angles and the nature of the one angle is 70 the nature of the other is 110 So there's all these kinds of ways in which God is working and you're like, why doesn't he do this? Well, if what you want in your angle is like the, the moral equivalent of 75 degrees, then you're assuming that the other angle has to be the complement of that. Right. Mm -hmm. And maybe it isn't. And so God is working as best it can be worked, but he's also working 10,000 angles Mm -hmm. and they're all interrelated geometrically in the moral nature of the universe in ways you can't possibly understand. So what you, what God is asking you to believe in his self revelation is, I promise you, this is the best working of those angles that can be done. Yeah. Given the willingness of the human beings who are supposed to be working with me. Right. And he would say, listen, if all the human beings were working with me, then all the angles would be beautiful, but they're not. Mm -hmm. And so I'm working with certain things dictated for me because I've allowed those things. I've wanted self-willed human beings. I've set up certain things this way. I've made science to have these certain values. And so I've set all these percentages and values in and of themselves. And, and now I'm working their interrelationship without fundamentally changing them. And so there are fundamental limitations there that are necessary. That is, they're logically necessary, right? So when we think, well, what's God, what's God's angle? Like on one level, it's true that God is working. He's working for the good. So he is quote, working angles. That's yeah. true. But it's a lot more complicated than we think. And that's one of the reasons why God doesn't spend a lot of time in scripture telling us exactly how he does it. He spends time saying, you can trust me. 
Yeah, it's interesting as you were saying that I was just thinking about well in those moments it's an invitation to groan rather than grumble. <laughs> yeah, and I think and and so I think like one of the, and I think that's one of the reasons why the cross itself is the is God's main proof of this. Because if there was a way to fix the problem of human sin, if there was a way to bring redemption without the death of the son of God, God would have done it. Mm-hmm. Right? Jesus says, "Look, I don't want to go to the cross, but not my will, but yours be done. Right. 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 And God, we know is delighted in his son. Right. He says, this is my son. I am well pleased in him. Right. Like he wasn't, he wasn't trying to save the world and get back at his son for disappointing him. Right. Mm -hmm. He, He had no other motivation that the son of God should be crucified other than to save the world. Right. Which dictates that like it was necessary for the son of God to go to the cross. Right. And Jesus chose it and God the Father sent him and the Spirit allowed this to happen providentially because in God's working of everything for the good, this great evil was necessary. And so if Christians can understand that God himself was willing to become incarnate Mm -hmm. and die so as to work things the way he wished, then unthinkable things are necessary for God to work the ends that he's working for ultimate good. And if you can't, and so he he doesn't offer us a philosophy for why good things happen and bad things happen to good people or a philosophy for why God is all powerful, all knowing, and yet bad things happen. He offers us an example. He says, look, look at me dying mm-hmm. to bring redemption. And if this kind of paradoxical horror is necessary to work the ultimate good, then everything around you is plausible to be necessary to work ultimate good, right? Where we kind of get hitched up is, in our hearts, we're really atheists and we don't believe in an eternity of the ultimate pleasures of God and his vindication of all things. And so we do think that things need to be like meted out here. Some, there has to be some equity here mm-hmm. on this side of death. And if that's true, then when a baby dies or like somebody gets killed in a car accident, they shouldn't have been in, then that's it. God's wrong. Right. But that's everywhere. God says that's not the way the calculus works. Mm -hmm. He can give back everything that's been taken. So no matter what's been taken from us and what we think, what we think is the problem with that, God can resurrect the dead things and give back all the lost things and more. And so in that sense, there is no way for us to sit in judgment. And God knew that. And but God isn't telling us everything that's happened. And so he shows us the paradox in the death of the son of God. He proves that God can love his son and his son can die for us. And that that can be, in some sense, even though God is omnipotent, necessary to bring about redemption. And if you can get your heart around that, and in some extent your head, you can walk through the world even under the curse and know that you stand with God and that you can, you can trust him. The cross is, should be, if we, un, if we really did understand it, it would be the ultimate proof of the fact that we can trust God which in a sense takes us back to the tree of the garden, which is like, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And they couldn't even trust God with that knowledge. Mm -hmm. And what God is saying is with all of these things, you don't understand, you can trust me in the tree of the cross. Right. Thanks for going over these things. We had one other sermon, but we didn't get to get to that. So maybe next week we can talk about the last one. Um, But thank you all for listening. And uh, we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to this episode of the
answered on the podcast, send us an email at podcast at highpointchurch.org. If you'd like to find more episodes, you can go online to highpointchurch.org slash podcast. You can also find us on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Overcast, and other apps like those. We hope this episode was helpful to you as you grow in becoming a more substantive disciple and part of the local church. If this episode was helpful to you, rate or review us on Apple Podcasts or share this episode with a friend. Those are some of the best ways we have to reach new listeners. Until next time, thank you for listening to this episode of Engage and Equipment.